Psalm 103, I will be reading it in its entirety. Hear this as it is, the Word of God. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfieth thy desire with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. Jehovah executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses and his doings unto the children of Israel. Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his precepts to do them. Jehovah hath established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless Jehovah, ye his angels, that are mighty in strength and fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless Jehovah, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless Jehovah, all ye his works in all places of his dominion. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. Thus far the reading of God's word. I wonder if you ever stop to think about the significance of what we are doing by coming here and worshiping God on Sunday mornings. We say that and we take everything for granted that we understand what we uh, mean when we say we've come to worship God. But uh, a moment's reflection, if I can get a little philosophical with you for a a few uh, seconds here, will help you to appreciate that we don't know really how to talk about God, do we? After all, we are not gods. God is of a different order than we are. In that sense, God is in a different category and not like us. And God is utterly mysterious. Dr. Bavink begins his well-known work on the doctrine of God by saying that theology begins and ends in mystery. And it does. We need to begin with the recognition that we stand before a being that our minds cannot fathom, that we cannot comprehend. A being that is so different from us, pure spirit, almighty, all holy. We think about the attributes of God, which are so different from us, how God is utterly independent of all things We are helpless creatures, so dependent on many things. 
God is immutable and unchangeable, always the same, and yet every one of our days is so different. Our fluctuations of moods and attitudes and beliefs, we are so unlike him in that way. God is infinite and we are so limited. God is everywhere we are located. God has always been and always will be. We have a beginning and an end. God is utterly simple in the sense of not being made up of parts. Yet all of our being, all of our thinking, all of our experience is just piece after piece, a complexion of things, a mosaic. God is so beyond us. And yet we take it for granted that we can talk about God and say, well, we go to church on Sunday morning to worship God. Well, how do we know what God is? How could he possibly communicate himself to us? John Calvin tells us in a very precious passage in the Institutes of the Christian Religion that God actually lisps to us. He condescends to come down to our level and speak to us in such a way that in our concepts and according to our experience we'll be able to understand him and relate properly to him. God speaks to us in terms of human analogies and figures of speech so that we might know what he's like. And so you think of the many ways in which God is described in the Bible. God is a king and rules over all, and we understand what the attitude should be toward a king, one of reverence, submission, and obedience. And God is a shepherd. We've heard that. Now how he cares for his sheep and tends to the flock. And we understand something of the responsibility and the value of shepherds, and we apply this to God. There are many ways in which the Bible speaks of God in terms of our own experience, giving us anthropomorphisms, to use the, the word, speaking to us in the form of God, anthropomorphism. In the, God has spoken to us in the form of a man. Excuse me. The anthropomorphism is that a human feature is given to us that we might understand a God who is far above us, so different from us, Oh, I praise God that he communicates to us in such figures of speech. And now, as we look at those figures of speech that tell us how we are to understand God in our terms, I think the most precious of all is how the Bible speaks of God as our Father who is in heaven. Our Father. Oh, the Bible speaks, as I've told you, in many ways of God, but I think none is so warm, none is so precious, so close to our own hearts, However bad our human fathers may have been, however good our human fathers may be, I think the figure that comes the closest to touching our hearts, the nerve center of our lives, is to tell us that the one who reigns over heaven and earth, that mysterious almighty being who made everything out of nothing, the one before whom we will stand on the final day as our judge, is nevertheless our father. Remember those uh, wonderful words, how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven. What could have Jesus said? He could have said, pray this way, unto the King Almighty, resplendent in glory, removed from sin, the one who is wrathful toward all disobedience and rules over all. That would have been appropriate, and we do pray sometimes to God as our King. But Jesus said, you must, in all your prayers, remember this, the pattern is that behind it all, God is your Father. And why is that? Why is that? 
You've had experiences in your life, haven't you, of asking things of people. Sometimes we go to our employers and we ask favors. Maybe you ask for a day off or for a raise. You ask that some problem on the job would be taken care of. And uh, if you're anything like me, I suppose we're all the same this way, going to an employer and asking a favor is hard. We kind of get a lump in our throat and we rehearse for a couple of days ahead of time and maybe we put it off a few times before we finally will have the, the nerve to go in. Maybe we finally ask to speak to the boss and get in there and we just kind of shoot the breeze for a while and say, well, catch you later and we have to get up our nerve another day. It is hard to go before our employer and ask for that. Maybe you've asked a teacher for a favor. You've had to go to the principal's office. You know how tough it is to talk. What if you felt the need to talk to your local congressman or senator or to the president of the United States? You see how awkward it would be? Now, I want you to compare all of those experiences, though, to what it was like as a child asking your daddy for something. Oh, what a difference. What a difference. And Jesus says, when you pray, remember this. You begin to pray, our Father who is in heaven. That father which is not like earthly fathers. Well, he is, but he isn't. He's so much better. Everything that is good, everything that is solid, stabilizing, everything that is valuable in our earthly fathers, he is infinitely more. And so we pray our Father who is in heaven. Of all of David's psalms, oh, and there are some wonderful ones here, all of them are beneficial. Of all of David's psalms, I think Psalm 103, because it magnifies God as a father, is precious to many people. You know, I would say that it's precious to all of God's people, but I have to stop for a minute and chide you because I'm afraid that you aren't close to the psalms. If I were to speak to you about some of the themes and some of the patterns that we see in the psalms, some of the background that David had, the things that he worked through, the reasons why he praised God, the complaints that he brought before him, the way in which he was described. If I were to say, remember Psalm 72 and the glories of the Messiah that will come. If I were to tell you of the stability of Psalm 90 and the way we hide in the shadow of God's care. If I were to go over these things, I'm afraid many of you would say, well, that's interesting. I suppose I should look up that psalm sometime. You should read the psalms. If your life is dry, if your life seems barren, if you seem devoid of joy, if you don't know how to work through problems in your life, read the Psalms. Those Psalms are just uh, medicine to the soul. So valuable. Well, all of them are good. But Psalm 103 is very precious to me. In Psalm 103, at the 13th verse, I want you to notice how this God who is beyond us, almighty, just so mysterious, this almost fearful creature, not creature, this being, this creator, how, how are we to think of him? Psalm 103.13 says, Think of him as a father pitying his children. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. On this Father's Day, it would be nice to talk about fathers, and I suppose I should be more indulgent and do that sort of thing on holidays like this. I often miss Mother's and Father's Day and that sort of thing, Columbus Day, whatever it may be. There's nothing inappropriate. The Bible has a lot to say about fathers. I want to suggest to you, though, that even if I were to talk to you earthly fathers about how the Bible would want you to be a father, I couldn't do better than to point you to your heavenly father and say, be like him. 
and what is our Heavenly Father like? What do you think about in your own experience with your Father? What stands out in your mind as all of us review just a little bit about our childhood and about growing up under a father's care? In some cases, maybe under a father's neglect, maybe a father's abuse. What is it you most wanted from a father if he was inadequate, and what is it that is closest to your heart if he was adequate? I want to suggest to you that fathers, they're a really great thing. It's a great institution. It was great having a father, and it's wonderful being a father. And there's a lot to it. You think of protection. Jim prayed this morning about how we just take it for granted that our Father can um, provide for us. And we have to remember that when we pray to our Heavenly Father. And that's true. When we grew up, we didn't stop to think, well, how is it that food gets on the table? And the sorts of things that mother and father probably sweated out and really worried about how to pay the bills and where to live and what to do under certain circumstances, you know, the children don't usually get drawn into that. They just go around playing and just assuming dinner will be on table, at the table, 6 o'clock tonight, and I'll have a bed to sleep in, and I'll have a mother and father who care for me. That's a wonderful thing about fathers. We assume their care and their stability. You probably remember wonderful things your father did for you, gifts that were given to you, special Christmases perhaps, somewhere you went with your father, special times. Well, we remember a lot of good things about fathers, and yet, you know the thing, as I think about my own father, who I think many people may have thought of as a stern person, as a disciplinarian, I remember the gifts, I remember the good times, I remember the care and the stability of that relationship. But what sticks with me to this very day is the fact that I knew, as I know so well now, that no matter what happens to me, and no matter how much I flub up, my dad will understand. And he'll love me. Let me give you an example of that, not from my experience, I hope never from your experience, but you sometimes see criminals who are convicted of, of very bad things. And you notice how, in many cases, not all, but in many cases how the mother or the father or both of that criminal is in the courthouse. And I'm thinking not of cases where the mother is going to her deathbed, you know, saying her little Johnny was innocent. No, I'm thinking of the mothers and fathers who sit there with hung heads, knowing that their son or their daughter is guilty and wrong. Now, you've seen that. You've seen it on the news. You've read about it. When you see that, what do you think? You think, well, how could they possibly love that child? Why don't they just reject the child and go on? Sometimes that happens. But you see, when you see that happening, even in unbelieving circles, even when it doesn't have the grace of God as its background, what you need to see is there's something about a father and a mother's love for their child that even when the child is wrong, dead wrong, they cannot give them up. And even when the mother and father would say, we understand and even approve of how the whole world will reject my child because of what he's done, someone's got to stand by him. Someone's got to be there to hold him up. Someone's got to show compassion and pity to him. And that so often, if ever, is going to be a mother and father toward the criminal. Well, bring it back to your own experience. You're not criminals. I'm not a criminal. But I bet you know what it is to understand the pity 
of your father. If you don't, I know that you long for it, that there's that emptiness in your heart for the feeling of the pity the father could have. The psalmist says, like as a father pities his children, so Jehovah pities them that fear him. This hymn of David's is perhaps one of the most universalized and less personal, less self-oriented hymns uh, that he wrote. This hymn doesn't seem to come out of David's own particular experience about his enemies pursuing him or his sense of guilt. David here is speaking of, in, as though the, he were the hymn writer, the hymn singer of all Israel, indeed of all of God's people. He's writing these words for all of us. It's more than a private thanksgiving that he offers in this, in this uh, psalm. It was meant for public praise, and I remember that this psalm inspired, in fact, F.H. Light's well-known hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. It's Psalm 103 that's the background for that. David's broad theme throughout this hymn, I think the epitome is talking about the Father's love and pity toward us, but his broad theme in all of this is his admiration and his gratitude for the grace of God. His heartfelt thanks for God's love shines through every line, and David wants that heartfelt thanks to radiate through his whole being. And so he begins, Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David is not satisfied that his mouth just on one occasion speak these particular words, but that his whole being at all times would radiate his love and admiration and gratitude to God for the grace that he has shown him. And David's fervent injunction that I want to just stop and look at for a while here this morning is in the second verse. He says, Bless Jehovah, O my soul, repeating the opening of the psalm, and forget not all his benefits. The injunction of this psalm is that we not forget the manifold, merciful benefits of God. Don't forget. So much of the Christian life, I must tell you, as one who counsels people, as one who would from this very pulpit counsel your hearts this morning, so much of the Christian life, you see, is dependent upon remembering. Remembering. The Lord's Supper. Remember. The memorials of the Old Covenant. Remember. The words of Scripture given to us to be memorized and remembered. And David here says, don't forget the benefits of God. The opposite of forgetting them is calling them to mind. David says, remember these things, recount them, go over them in your mind. You know, you waste a lot of time, I waste a lot of time when we have idle moments what do we fill our thoughts with? We often fill our thoughts with daydreams about things we'd like to do or things we'd like to get. Maybe we fill our minds with bitter things and nurture grudges or hurts or things that are wrong in our life. Maybe we worry about things. Maybe we just look for some lighthearted entertainment to fill our thoughts. We should be filling our minds with the remembrance of God's goodness. Have you ever sung that little song? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Yes, we need to do that. We need to wear out a few chairs, sitting down counting our blessings. 
It may surprise you how high you could count if you would really do that. David says, don't forget what God has done. You get down in the mouth. I know you do. And you know why you do? Because you don't count your blessings. And you get discouraged in your Christian life. And do you know why you do? Because you forget what God has done. And you fall into persistent patterns of sin. I know you do. And the reason you do is because you don't remember what God has brought you out of. Count your blessings. Remember, David pleads with his own soul. He enters into the soliloquy with himself and he says, My soul, don't forget the blessings of God. Don't forget the benefits that he has given us. I think the major source of discouragement and defeat in our Christian lives is right there. But I have to press further. Why? Is it because we are absent-minded? Is it because we just forget what God has done? Our minds just, it passes away like something lost off of a floppy disk on our computer. It's just there one minute and gone another? Is it something like putting your car keys somewhere and you can't remember? Are we, is it just we kind of get lost mentally and we can't remember what God has done? No, it's not that. It's not absent-mindedness. The reason we don't count our blessings, I'll tell you why. I'll illustrate it for you from Scripture. Turn to 2 Chronicles 32.25. 2 Chronicles 32, the 25th verse. And there we have a very strong indictment. Very heavy words about Hezekiah. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. Hezekiah did not remember the benefits of God and did not then render, answer in kind. He did not show the appropriate reaction to all these things. All the good things God had done. Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, there was wrath upon him. Why did Hezekiah not remember the benefits of God? Why did Hezekiah take all these things in, all these benefits, all these blessings, all these good things God had done, and not render according to them, not answer in the way that he should? Because the Bible says his heart was lifted up. What is a lifted up heart? It's a proud heart. It's a heart that thinks well of itself. It's a heart that wants to rule over others. It's a heart that wants to be magnified. And Hezekiah had that proud, conceited heart. And I say this to my own heart as much as I say it to you, brothers and sisters. The reason we don't count our blessings is because we're proud. Because we take it in, and we may say thank you the day we get it, we may say thank you the moment that we have the blessing, but then we go on. And we just, instead of saying, this is something I should remember every day of my life, we take it for granted. We say, well, of course, this is the way it should be. Our hearts are lifted up. Our hearts are proud. You know, the people who don't forget the blessings that come into their lives are the people who have the lowest estimation of themselves and recognize they have nothing coming. And if we don't remember the benefits of God, it's because I guess we assumed we had it coming. Yeah, we would say theologically, mentally, right there in the front of our brains, we might say, well, yes, I know I have nothing coming. That's the academic answer. But why is it our hearts, why is it our lives don't respond with utter gratitude, remembering day by day? In fact, it ought to get so hard 
Can you imagine this? You start getting later and later to work every day. And your employer says, I'm a bit concerned. You say, well, you see, the problem is that I started praising God and counting my blessings yesterday morning. And then I went through another day and there was so much more that this morning I got up and I recounted all those things and there was more to it. And so I had to get here a little bit later. And then the next day I got up and there was another day's worth of blessings. I mean, it... If we were to do that, literally, it seems like we'd run out of time to do anything else. It would just take more and more of our day. Eventually, we'd just be saying, thank you all the time to God. I'm not exaggerating. That's what would be the case if we would forget not his benefits and not have hearts that are lifted up and proud. Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, tells us why we don't remember the benefits of God. It speaks about the experience of Israel. Deuteronomy 8.11, Beware, lest thou forget Jehovah thy God in not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, beware when everything's going so wonderfully well for you, because then thy heart will be lifted up, and thou forget Jehovah thy God, who brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, etc., etc. That's why we don't remember, as our hearts are lifted up. We're living in nice houses. We have better incomes. We have good health. God has filled our stomachs. Beware when things are going well for you. Because, you see, you may forget the source of your well-being. And in forgetting, lose it. So this morning, let's think about our Heavenly Father and all the benefits that He gives us. What, what is it, above all, what is the paramount blessing of all that our Heavenly Father gives to us? David knows what it is because he goes right to it. He has so many things to praise God for, but you see what immediately is listed. David says, Bless Jehovah, O my soul, forgetting all of his benefits. In verse 3, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. There may be some benefits of God that we could fool ourselves that we might be able to barter for, maybe earn. If not earn, maybe do something toward the attainment of them. After all, if I work hard for my employer, I expect him to pay me to pay me better as I get to be a better employee. We might fool ourselves that God will give us more sunshine and crops, more food, that he might take care of us if we live better. For him, But you know the one thing you'll never, if you have any clear thinking, fool yourself about, and that's that you cannot earn the forgiveness of God. Don't forget his benefits. Above all, that he forgives. That he forgives. But not just that, he forgives all. Not a single sin that God doesn't put aside. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. God loves us more than we love ourselves, doesn't he? God does better at forgetting our sins than we do. Don't forget all of his benefits. Who forgives all thine iniquities. 
Verse 4 tells us, Who redeems thy life from destruction and crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. You could expect God to say, You have been such a terrible child, but I'll let you in the back gate. You can stay back there, but that isn't the image of God as a father in the Bible. It's rather the story of the prodigal son, how the father comes running out to greet the wayward son, the prodigal, and to greet him and bring him back and to throw a party that he's there. God doesn't just forgive us and then say, okay, don't be any more problem to me. He forgives us and then crowns our life with loving kindness. He sets us on high with benefits. And redeems our lives from destruction. Literally in the Hebrew, redeems our life from the pit. What's the pit? It's the grave, of course. And how is it that God buys back our life from the grave? What's going to be the greatest benefit of all? That we would be raised from the dead. So that the consequences of our sin, the wages of sin is death. Those consequences will be reversed. We have a Heavenly Father who can not only patch us up when we get skinned up playing with our wagons, you see. We have a Father who can bring our lives back from the dead and will because He loves us. And verse 5 tells us of the refreshing renewal that God gives us when we recognize this. When we start counting our blessings and understanding that our lives are redeemed from destruction, He will satisfy thy desire with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. This psalm meant a whole lot to Isaiah the prophet. You can't help but remember, I hope you can't help but remember, Isaiah the 40th chapter, how he likens the benefit of knowing God and being redeemed. He uses these same words. Verse 30, Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait for Jehovah shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Look at the refreshment, the renewal, the tireless strength God gives to us. What the psalmist is saying, and you need to hear this if you want to really jump for joy today, is that our opportunities and our future, when we have God's forgiveness... And God's renewal is our benefits. Our future and our opportunities are as sunny and as, our, as hopeful as when we were young. When we were young people and had great dreams and, and things to look forward to and a bright future ahead of us, he says, your youth is renewed like the eagles when you know that God has forgiven you. The example that he gives us in verses 7 and 8 is that of the Exodus. Remember Moses and Aaron... And then the psalmist virtually quotes Deuteronomy 34, 6 in the 8th verse, Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. When was that said? Oh, you need to remember the context to get the punch here. That was said when Moses asked to see God face to face. And God passed before Moses at what time when he was on the mount pleading for the life of and the well-being of the nation that had fallen into idolatry in the golden calf. And there Moses professes that the Lord is slow to anger. That's such a hard thing to emulate as a father. We get tired, we get impatient, we sometimes get harassed with our children. And sometimes the anger is there like that. But never with God. God never says... 
because he's tired or he's fed up with us or he's had a bad day, then immediately we're to be cut off. God is slow and patient, never running to anger, rather abundant in loving kindness, being merciful and gracious. And now you who have sensitive hearts, you who know that you've sinned, oh, commit this to memory, the ninth verse, he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. He doesn't deal with us that way. You know, sometimes we, we sometimes feel that God is going to have to get even. Isn't that right? We think we've done things, we deserve it, we have it coming. And we tend to interpret things in our experience as God maybe slapping us down. And you're wrong. I feel like that many times in my own life. And I need to keep coming back to this to be reminded He does not deal with us according to our sins. You know, I love my children very much and I suppose I shouldn't use them in sermon illustrations. It gets hard for them. But it is true that if I punished my children and with greater intensity every time they repeated an offense, if I dealt with them tit for tat according to every offense, this would be a very bad experience in their lives. And if that's true in human relationships, can you imagine what it would be like if God were to deal with us according to our sins? But he doesn't. He doesn't deal with us that way. He doesn't reward us after our iniquities. And so verse 11 tells us, As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his loving kindness toward them is. It is that fear them. That's how much. You just fill everything in your experience. As high as the heavens, that's the loving kindness of God. In verse 12, as I've already told you, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. And then the high point of it all, on Father's Day, like a father, pities his children. So Jehovah pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. On those rare occasions when I'm being a good father, and I do pity my children, it's usually tied to the fact that I remember what they're made of. I remember what the quality of their lives is. I remember myself. When I see my children doing what I did, displaying attitudes that I had or have, I know them so well. But you see, in the case of God, you'd expect it to be the opposite. See, God isn't uh, remembering that he too had a bad childhood. And so he says, well, I have to be easy on them because after all, I'd be hard on myself. Otherwise, God is so holy and removed from sin that in the slightest sign of disobedience or rebellion or obstinance, he could rightly say, you are cut off forever. Don't ever think you're a member of my family. But he doesn't. He pities his children, remembering their frame, that they are but dust. How comforting. The pity of God, the affection and compassion, the warmth that's the mark of a true parent. Isaiah 49.15 asks, Can a mother forget her suckling child? Can God forget us as his children? Can he fail to have such compassion and pity? Not at all. That's the assurance of this song. The amazing thing is that this father, this father knows us so well and still cares for us. 
And in verse 14, you need to know this much about the Hebrew. The word he is emphatic. It's emphasized. For he knows our frame. He knows you. He understands you. He sees you inside and out. And having done that, where you would expect him to turn his back on you, he rather pities you and loves you. As the words of the song say, the one who knows me best loves me most. In verses 15 to 18, the psalmist tells us of the fading quality of life but the eternal love of God. Man's days are as grass as a flower of the field, so it flourishes. The wind passes over it and it's gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But, by contrast, the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting. It goes on and on and on upon them that fear him. And his righteousness is unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, to those that remember his precepts to do them. And then what does David want to do as he remembers his Father in heaven? What should we want on this Father's Day as we remember our Father in heaven? We should be asking that all creation join with us in remembering. Such a gracious, pitying Father. And so David says, Jehovah has established his throne in, his, in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless Jehovah. First of all, all the angels, those who are mighty in strength and fulfill his word, who listen to his his voice, and go do his will. David calls on the angels to remember Father's Day. He says, Bless Jehovah, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless Jehovah, all ye his works. All the animals of the field and all the trees of the forest and the seas and the skies and everything that he has made. David says, All of creation needs to remember my Father. My Father in heaven. And David ends, coming right back to where he began. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. Let me ask you, do you know this father? Do you know this one who wants to be a father to you? Have you missed an earthly father? Are you missing a father that has passed away? Do you love your earthly father but realize you need even more? And make this the best Father's Day of all. Learn to come through his real son, Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Confess that you haven't got anything to offer him. And that you plead for mercy for the sake of your Savior, Jesus Christ. That he will be to you a heavenly father. Let's pray. Thank you for being a father to us. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Pity us in our sin. In our weakness. In all of our many failures. And show us that everlasting, never-ending love. That we so desperately need. To make us whole. To make us acceptable. To make us all you want us to be. We really can't thank you enough. And so we pray that by your spirit you will help us to have lives that say thank you for being our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.